The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. It's the first of the month. It's Friday. Happy Friday to everyone. You're watching Squawkbox with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are the headlines for you. So, a September to forget. Wall Street wraps up its worst month since the start of the pandemic with heavy losses as COVID, inflation, supply chain anxieties all weigh on global markets. Congress, though, keeping the lights on until December 3rd with the US president signing a late night funding bill. The Democrats bow to partisan pressure and delay a vote on Biden's trillion dollar infrastructure program. BMW lifts its four-year guidance, shrugging off the chip crisis as higher car prices boost the bottom line. Meanwhile, Daimler CEO Ola Kalenius joins us later in the show as shareholders prepare to vote on its truck unit spin-off. A former German SPD leader, Sigmar Gabriel, tells CNBC he welcomes a pro-European coalition in Berlin as the bloc carves out a new geopolitical role on the global stage. It will be a government that will be very conscious about the role Germany plays in Europe. As the biggest country at the centre of Europe, this role always entails the responsibility to take care of the bloc's cohesion. And China orders state-backed firms to maintain energy supplies at all costs. That's interesting. After a series of blackouts and shortages in the country, this as natural gas prices hit records in the UK and Europe. It was a weak finish for the month of September and for the quarter on US markets. Uh, Just too many issues for investors that have climbed a wall of worry during the month of September. A lot of volatility we've witnessed in the last few trading sessions and across the month. And so what we had as we wrapped up the close, you could see slightly more resilient technology sector. And that's where a lot of the worries have been concentrated around with this uh, perception that yields will rise at some point, uh, given that we now have a, a taper that's been teed up for this year and interest rates on the horizon from next year. At 1.6% on the Dow to the downside, there was a fall of more than 540 points. The S&P also tracking lower. And you can see the Nasdaq down uh, just uh, four-tenths of a percent, roughly, as it closed out the trade. So we're not exactly going out on a high to finish out the month. Uh, some of the more negative parts of the market to United Health when it came to the Dow and Apple when it came to the S&P and the Nasdaq. So uh, fairly instrumental stocks we're talking about here in the tech sector as well. I want to take you to the S&P. S&P 500 sectors. Um, this is how they traded across the course of the session. You could see uh, a little bit of window dressing to close out the month. Met uh, fairly decent ranges to the downside right across the board. The S&P Industrials, uh, that was down 2.1%. Steep falls too, as you can see, across for the consumer. Discretionary financial stocks down 1.6%. It really was just technology uh, that uh, was somewhat resilient uh, across the course of the trade. I wanted to take you to the end of month uh, for the S&P. And this is what it looked like for the month of September. Given all those wild sessions that we'd pretty much endured, you could see it started out strong and then we saw the wobble across the, the course in the middle of the month, a little bit higher than back down again. So effectively the change, a fall of just over roughly four and three quarters of a percent. So it was a fairly downbeat month that played out. 
uh, is what we saw on the change for uh, the course of the month. Uh, let me take you to what we saw in Treasuries. Also a dip in session yesterday after what has been a fairly strong uh, end to September. Markets have seen a fairly rapid ascent and over the course of the month we've moved about 20-odd basis points uh, since August on this U.S. 10-year Treasury yield. This morning you can see back flipping below the 1.5% level, 1.47 on the charts. But it has been one of those uh, particular points in time where investors have sat back, looked at uh, the inflation story and just what that's going to mean for the Fed and uh, the pace of a taper. Much longer enduring inflation has been one of the themes that's really been crossing in recent weeks, given all the supply chain disruptions and the, the back end of this pandemic demand story. I want to take you to the dollar as a result. Uh, we've also come off a little bit on uh, some of the dollar trades as well. You can see dollar to the Japanese yen down by about a tenth of a percent. Sterling and you are just giving back a little bit of territory morning session and uh, you can see a slight drift there. The opening calls, uh, let's just see how we're getting set up for the trade today for uh, the month of October. You can see red right across the chart is what we're watching. The stocks are up 600, uh, rounded out yesterday, just tilting slightly lower, but there were steeper falls on the core market where we shed, for instance, a roughly six-tenths of a percent plus on the German and French stock markets to close out the month. So we are chasing uh, 200 odd points to the downside of the DAX. That's a, a decent pullback anticipated at the start. So let's go to Matthew Taylor for more. Matt, a few different uh, features of your market there as well, particularly big long closure for the Chinese market coming up as well. So uh, just walk us through what you've got on the boards for the Friday session. Hi there, Karen. Uh, a rough way to end the week for Asian markets and a rough way to start out the final trading quarter of the year. With the exception of New Zealand, it's just closed. We'll call that flat up by about three points. But sizable declines across the Asia Pacific on the back of that sell-off that we did see on Wall Street overnight. Markets down in the order of about 2%. Australia, 2%. Uh, the Taiwan market now 2.5%. Uh, the Japanese market more than 2%. Singapore, 1%. The Kospi about 1.6%. So a fair bit of selling pressure, as you point out. Greater China markets are closed today, both on the mainland and in Hong Kong as well. Uh, but let's go to the Japanese market. Amongst the lost leaders, the Nikkei down uh, by 710 points, almost 2.5%. We did get some upbeat news on the economic mood, though, in Japan. The Tankan survey, larger companies expressing greater confidence in the recovery that had been expected and a willingness to up CapEx before the end of the fiscal year. Smaller firms, as forecast, were less confident about conditions improving, but not as pessimistic as a number of analysts out there had been forecasting. So this is a key uh, release that we're watching out of the Bank of Japan today, uh, coming out from Japan. Not doing a whole lot, though, to help out the market. Uh, the Australian market, a big loser today, as I was also pointing out as well. The ASX 200, 141 points weaker, uh, down by about 2%. But... Karen, you might be interested to know, as I am the Prime Minister of Australia, announcing a reopening of international borders in Australia as early as next month for residents that are fully vaccinated. Of course, this had been a long time coming with borders seemingly being shut in Australia uh, for the best part of about 18 months or so. Caps on arrival. So any resident that is outside or wants to leave the country that is fully vaccinated will be permitted to do so by next month. It's been a busy day in Australia as well because uh, we've also had the New South Wales uh, State Premier. This is Gladys Berejiklian, a familiar face fronting those COVID updates to provide an update on what's happening in New South Wales each and every day suddenly announcing her resignation from the job after almost five years today amid a corruption probe. So very busy way to end out the trading week for us here in the Asia Pacific. Back to you. Indeed, uh, Matt, and quite a sea change, isn't it, when it comes to those border changes? Uh, hopefully you and I get to see each other on the other side of the world at some point soon.
it's tough to get back, isn't it? Yeah. Our, um, our New Zealand colleague, in fact, the lady producing this show this morning, the, the head honcho, she, she can't get back. They can't, you, have to get, you have to go in line to get slots and they're all filled up. It's not difficult if you think about what's required. So there's seven-day quarantine at home, but if you think about what a, a home would be, yeah. for a lot of us, it would be with a loved one, with a parent potentially, and then you don't necessarily want to expose family members to a risk. Absolutely. So therefore, you maybe need them to move out of your home to somewhere else for the seven-day quarantine. So yeah, it's still it's, quite it's cumbersome. Still Stunningly cumbersome, isn't okay. it? Um, let's move back to our top stories. The US has avoided a government shutdown uh, for now. Uh, President Biden signed a short-term appropriations bill to fund federal activities through December 3rd. The continuing resolution holds spending at current levels whilst lawmakers negotiate a full-year funding plan and includes money for hurricane relief and the resettlement of Afghan refugees. Congress also faces the threat of the U.S. defaulting for the first time ever in October. Testifying to the House Financial Services Committee, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen doubled down on the call to raise the debt ceiling, arguing she would even take power over debt limits away from Congress. We must address this issue to honor commitments made by this and prior Congresses, including those made to address the health and economic impact of the pandemic. It's necessary to avert a catastrophic event for our economy. Representatives, the debt ceiling has been raised or suspended 78 times since 1960, almost always on a bipartisan basis. My hope is that we can work together to do so again and to build a stronger American economy for future generations. The U.S. House of Representatives will return today to try to vote on President Biden's infrastructure bill. A vote scheduled for yesterday was delayed by Democrats as inter-party divisions continue between moderates and progressives who want action on a larger reconciliation social policy bill first. The delay buys Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi time to assemble more key votes. Pelosi struck an optimistic tone, insisting her party is on the path to an agreement. No all doubt in anyone's mind that we will not have a reconciliation. We will have a reconciliation bill. That is for sure. The qu today, the question is about uh, we are proceeding in a very positive way to bring up the bill of the BIF to do so in a way that can win. And so far, so good for today. It's going in a positive direction. It's impossible, though, to persuade people to vote for the BIF without the reassurances that the re reconciliation bill will occur, and it will. Harry Holzer joins us now, Professor of Public Policy, Georgetown University, former Chief Economist for the U.S. Department of Labor. Harry, I think it's fair to say there's a lot of politics in the backdrop here, just trying to get these bills across the line. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin indicating it's just a matter of time, though. Do you think that is the case, that we will see some form of progression on these key bills? Well, it's it's hard to believe that the Democrats would allow this to completely fail. Uh, the, the progressives, of course, want $3.5 trillion. Senator Manchin has said he only wants $1.5. That's a very large gulf. Both sides, though, would be so much worse off uh, if, if, if the stalemate uh, lasts indefinitely. So my guess is that they will come to some sort of compromise uh, sometime relatively soon. 
Harry, can we talk about the necessity for some of these initiatives? I mean, at this stage, we've obviously had supersized growth on the back of the pandemic, but it will not last forever. And already there are fears globally around stagflation. Uh, what we've got in this bill around infrastructure, about building and improvements to roads, bridges, ports and expanded broadband internet access, which we know is a leveller at this point. It's very important to bring people into uh, the, the uh, sphere where they do have access to, to broadband on a regular basis. The other point around social policy, diversity in income and wealth levels has been a huge issue in the United States. So how crucial are these bills for the next phase of U.S. growth? Um, I, you know, I, I, I think I think they will be quite important and, and quite helpful. Um, the economy can proceed without them, of course, but, you, you know, the, the infrastructure bill uh, on many dimensions which should contribute to American productivity over time, uh, whereas the other bill... Uh, on, on, on many dimensions, it, it deals with, uh, you know, a, a range of issues, everything from pre-kindergarten programs and community college and uh, uh, child care, sort of a, a wide range of social needs. Um, and, and, of course, the other thing is that at least the individual pieces uh, do seem to have fairly broad political backing. So, so um, I, I think you can make a case that, that for the American economy over time, uh, these bills are are mostly a good thing. Yeah, Harry, good morning to you. Look, a lot of this reminds me of the kind of shenanigans that meant that populists such as uh, Donald Trump got into power around the world uh, in, uh, what, 2017. If I was a Republican, I wouldn't know what kind of party I'm going to get in the midterms. And if I was a Democrat, I would be even more confused at the moment. Is this just turning people off? As you say, everybody wants infrastructure. Everybody knows that US needs this desperately, this $1 trillion plus as well. But the politicians and their wrangling as well, is it leaving the voters in dismay? Well, I, I think they'll be very dismayed if this effort fails completely. Uh, and that would be pretty disastrous politically for the Democrats. But I think uh, you know, assuming in the end that they can find some common ground. And, and my guess is that the common ground, that the, the bill will be not 1.5 or 3.5 trillion. It'll be somewhere that starts with a two. Uh, but if they can come to that and deliver most of the things they've promised, I, I, I think the voters would forgive them for whatever shenanigans are going on right now. And, you know, th- this is this is bargaining tactics. You know, I, I think the progressives are really digging in their heels because they, they envy they envy the power of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema uh, to call the shots. So so they're you know they're trying to bolster their own bargaining power. My guess is you know when push comes to shove, shove they will have to find some common ground uh, and they will. And if they don't they will be punished very heavily by the voters. But one thing, Harry, that I mean, look, people love or loathe the, the former president, Mr. Trump, but he had pretty strong control and still does, we think, uh, of Republicans and the party uh, and the message coming out from Republicans. President Biden is struggling, isn't he? Let's be honest about it. He's struggling to control his party and the various factions. You mentioned Manchin, of course, uh, and AOC and the progressives on the other side. No, that that's true. Uh, you know, and this is a party where uh, uh, the the gaps are pretty wide. And of course, the other thing is it's, it's clear that the party so clearly needs both of these groups. Uh, they need the progressives. They need the moderates. They can't afford to lose a single seat in the Senate. And, and they have very, very little room in the House. So they have to, they have to keep both sides happy. And, and that's, that's more challenging than you're right. Now, now the Republicans, 
behind the scenes uh, differ quite a bit with each other, but at least publicly, no one dares speak out against Trump because they didn't they'd incur the wrath of, of the Republican base. So in that sense, it, 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 at least appearances are that the Republicans are unified. Uh, I, I suppose fear of Donald Trump is that unifying factor. And the Democrats have no, Joe Biden has nothing like that that forces uh uh, this unity, unity to occur between his two factions. Harry, I want to bring up the debt ceiling. We've been in this situation before, slightly now biting and a countdown to see whether the, the debt ceiling will be lifted or not. In this particular case, assumptions that roughly uh, the US could uh, hit that ceiling by October the 18th, so within a matter of a couple of weeks. Is there anything in the politics this time around that suggests that uh, we will actually see a default on US debt? You know, it, it's almost unthinkable. Uh, everybody knows, and the Republicans don't want to default either. They just want the Democrats to bear the costs of, of number one, being responsible for all the borrowing politically, even though, of course, both sides have have, have contributed to all the borrowing. Um, but it would be such a disaster uh, that that it really is unthinkable. And and I, I think the other thing that that um, that Mitch McConnell wants is for the Democrats, if the Democrats have to pass this on their own, uh, this will be one more time when they have to use the reconciliation mechanism. Uh, and there's only a certain number of times that the Democrats are allowed to do that. So it makes it harder to pass the $3.5 trillion bill if they also have to use reconciliation uh, to, to uh, lift the debt ceiling. And that just puts them in a, in a difficult spot. They have to try to get both of those things into the same bill and pass it within this two-week window. Uh, and, and that's challenging for the Democrats. But when push comes to shove, I have to believe this will be done. It would be disastrous. And everybody knows what a disaster it would be not to do it. Yeah, and, and, and would probably dent as well that one of the key reasons why many people voted for the president, and that is because they thought he was a good mover and shaker on Congress. They thought he was the bipartisan man who could get these deals done. Harry, we have to leave it there. I could talk to you all day. Thank you for staying up late for us. I really appreciate it, as ever. Harry Holzer, who is Professor of Public Policy at Georgetown University, former Chief Economist for the U.S. Department of Labor. You know, Georgetown is the boss's old uh, university, I think. Oh, right. Or was she at Brown? I think no, she was at Georgetown, I think. Pretty sure. Right, let's uh, move on. Economic growth in the U.S. has been revised up. Now, that's interesting, to 6.7% for the second quarter. Consumer spending boosting activity. This after GDP rose 6.3% in the first quarter, whilst growth in the third quarter is forecast to come in below 5%. Well, U.S. weekly jobless claims rose for a third straight week, topping expectations at 362,000. A total of 11.25 million people are still receiving unemployment benefits, Hiring remains sluggish as the U.S. battles the ongoing surge in Delta COVID cases. Right, coming up on this show, former SPD leader Sigmar Gabriel tells CNBC he welcomes a pro-European coalition in Berlin. Aren't all coalitions in Berlin pro-European? Well, anyway, uh, especially as Europe carves out a new geopolitical role for itself. And there's Anetta as well on the, uh, on the interview. Uh, it's all coming up next. Plus... Uh, just a reminder, you can stay up to date with the latest political wrangling on Capitol Hill by subscribing to the Sportbox podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. BMW has hiked its full-year guidance as inflated vehicle prices offset the negative impact of bottlenecks in the supply of semiconductors. The German car maker says it now expects its EBIT margin to come in between 9.5 and 10.5% on sales, whilst free cash flow for the automotive segment is estimated to reach 6.5 million billion euros. A big pardon. Uh, BMW's next earnings report is slated for the beginning of November. Have you not got those lovely i4 pictures you showed when Karen was uh, at the wall? Uh, no, don't worry, there, there was some really lovely, you had a, 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 a I think it's, it's still a, a concept car. It was right. an i4, it looked gorgeous. Mm. You know, the problem I've always had with BMW is the i8 was stunning, right. you know, the first electric cars they had, and yet the i3. Well, this is the thing with the new lineup of right. a lot of EVs. Right. I mean, Normal people, you get an i3. Yeah. Lovely people, you get an i8. And yeah. it's just there's a difference in design. I always want to talk to the designers at BMW about that. That's the i4. I mean, how gorgeous is that? Mm, I like the front. Uh, I know the, uh, the big grills are very divisive, by the way. <laughs> Do you still call it a grill, though? Well, uh, yeah, so, but but they're very divisive because they're huge. On even on the small models, they look huge compared. I mean, look at that! Look at that! Look at that! Oh, I think oh. we need Jeff here, but I was going to ask a question. Is there any point to having a bigger grill? Is it just an aesthetic or is it, there something to yeah, do with I, the I fundamental nature of EVs? I, I presume you need airflow somewhere to call it engine, But do you, you need more airflow for an EV than you would for a typical combustion engine? I don't think you engine? do. I don't think you do. That's my understanding. There you go. That's how much I know about cars. We better, like we better move on very quickly, yeah. haven't we? Uh, well, we're going to continue. I will tell you, uh, um, Rod. Um, directors uh, ask me what about the next guest because we're going to continue discussion on how the car industry is dealing with supply constraints and inflationary pressures later this morning when we speak to the Daimler CEO, Ola Shalanius. So do not miss that first on interview. That's great. 7.50 Central European time. Germany's Conservative CDU-CSU bloc is set to hold exploratory coalition talks with the Liberal Free Democrats this weekend. That's according to Reuters citing officials inside the group. The CDU-CSU came in second behind the Social Democrats in Sunday's election. But a so-called Jamaica coalition with the FDP and Greens would still give it a governing majority. Let's get out to Aneta for more. Aneta, uh, last point uh, on the back of the election result. We were seeing some of the smaller parties hold exploratory talks. Now this is a, a slight change where we have uh, the Conservatives having those conversations over the weekend. Yeah, exactly. The Conservatives are having those conversations over the weekend at, on Sunday evening. Um, that's what I'm hearing from Berlin with the Liberals, and then they will go and talk to the Greens on Tuesday. But that doesn't really mean a lot. I think what is more astonishing, that currently already the head of the very influential 
DGB trade union stepped out and openly endorsed the idea of a, uh, of a traffic light coalition and praised the liberals. So that's a huge step forward because, of course, the, the trade unions would not really favor the liberals in any kind of government, but uh, in the past at least. But now everything seems to be different. The new shooting stars here on the scene are Christian Lindner, the head of the liberals, and also um, Robert Habeck, the um, former sort of co-leader of the Greens, who now emerged as the front runner of being the deputy chancellor of Germany. So I guess this is like the most dominant scenario that we're going to get a traffic light coalition in case the Green and the Liberals uh, can compromise on on crucial issues. So yesterday I caught up with the former leader of the SPD and now president of the Transatlantic Association um, uh, in Berlin. And I asked him what he thinks the new government will mean for Europe and also more integration, because clearly that's desperately needed if we want to compete with the two other blocks of the world, the US and China. Take a listen. In jedem Fall haben wir drei in any case, we have three pro-European parties with the SPD, the Greens and the Liberals. It will be a government that will be very conscious about the role Germany plays in Europe. As the biggest country at the centre of Europe, this role always entails the responsibility to take care of the bloc's cohesion. That's also important, as we very much depend on Europe when it comes to our economic prospects. So it's quite clear that Germany and Europe kind of needs to find a new role in the world, especially after that submarine deal uh, broke together um, with uh, between France and and the new AUKUS alliance came about with major irritations here in Europe. So I asked him as well what that actually means for transatlantic relation and where Europe is standing in all that uh, like situation. It is quite clear how this cooperation came about and how the cancellation of the submarine deliveries from France have added to irritations in Europe when it comes to the importance of transatlantic relations with the US. On the other hand, Europeans have to learn that Joe Biden's slogan, America is back, does not mean the old America that has represented international European interests for more than 70 years. The US wants a leading role in the defense of democracies against the advent of authoritarian regimes, but it will be much more concentrated on the Indo-Pacific region. And the transatlantic alliance will have many things to care about, but the smallest of all will be the Atlantic. Um, and what does it mean for transatlantic relations that the U.S. is more or less refocusing on the APEC region? It means Europe has to think about how to fill the vacuum the U.S. is leaving behind in the southern Mediterranean Sea, in North Africa and in the Middle East. At the moment, the vacuum is only being taken up by authoritarian countries, Turkey, Russia, Iran, the Arab Emirates, and even China, they all want to spread their influence in the region. The only ones who don't have a lot to say there are the Europeans. That does not mean that we need to get active militarily, but of course Europe needs a common security and defense policy. I think it would be clever if Europe would support the Build Back Better initiative of Joe Biden. 
That has not happened at the last G7 summit. The Europeans felt a bit thrown off by the fact that the US had spoken about the topic with the UK, Australia and some other countries, but not that much with the European Union. That does not change anything about the fact that it is a clever initiative and an alternative, for example, to China's Belt and Road Initiative for countries in Central Asia and Africa who don't want to team up with an authoritarian regime. Europe must learn to think strategically. We didn't need to do that in the past, as this job had been done by the Brits, a bit by the French, but above all by the Americans. And that is what we now need to learn to do by ourselves. So in any case, Europe and Germany especially has to boost its defense spending, perhaps not by that 2%, but in another part of the interview, he's suggesting that one could have 1.5% in direct um, defense spending and then um, bring another 0.5% to the defense of Eastern Europe, where NATO has specialized funds for So all in all, to bring it up to 2%, because if Germany were, were to increase its military spending really to 2% of GDP, then after 10 years, you would have a gigantic military force, something which most likely wouldn't go down too well with other countries as well, given the history of Germany. So I think it's an interesting uh, turning point we're currently in, especially when, when it comes to Europe, but also the positioning of Europe in the world. And the next government here in Germany will be crucially important uh, whether things turn right or wrong, because clearly we need to find a common approach when it comes to defense, but also to boost our internal market. That was another point Sigma Gabriel was making once and over again, that without really being an economic powerhouse in the world, meaning to have a proper proper um, internal market in Europe, we are not able to compete internationally. Uh, it doesn't really matter only to be a military force. We also need to be an economic force. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.